0: Um, I want to introduce Dr. Berman, who's our next speaker. He will be joining us tonight at the Diplomate Reception. He's, um, he's a board member of the AAD, so we're really excited to have him tonight joining us. And I'm just gonna, he has a very impressive bio, so I'm just gonna kind of read off some of the highlights here. Uh, he's a professor of dermatology at the University of Miami, medical director for dermatology and in inpatient and outpatients at Dane County Jackson Memorial, uh, he's been a professor at University of Dermatology, uh, professor of dermatology at UC Davis. He's the chief of dermatology at the VA Medical Center and the chairman of the dermatology department at Mount Sinai Medical Center. He's the past president and founder of the National Association of VA Affairs Dermatologists and on the scientific advisory board for many journals. He practices in, in private practice and also attends the Miami VA Medical Center. Most of his research is on the study and control of scarring and he's presented in over 250 meetings, authored more than 250 peer-reviewed journals, and uh, he's the recipient of the Dean's Senior Faculty Award from the University of Miami. He's been bestowed Scientist of the Year from Sigma Xi. And um, he's also included in the Best Doctors of America. So please welcome him and join him tonight at the Diplomate Reception. We still have just a couple of spots left. If you're a diplomate and you haven't signed up, stop by the booth and we'll get you signed up for the reception tonight. We're leaving at 6 p.m. sharp from the lobby.
1: Thank you very much for inviting me. I've been given the small task to review everything that's new and emerging in dermatology in one hour. So it's going to be a uh, roller coaster, and I'm going to try to talk about all these different topics. Uh, These are my disclosures, and I will be discussing usages of various drugs that are off FDA labeling. Let's get to it. Let's start off with uh, what's new uh, in the ability to control and treat keloids and scarring, Let's start off a little historically with interferon as an immune response modifier uh, for the treatment of keloids and scarring. Now, who in his right mind would even consider to use an immune response modifier to treat a scar? Well, uh, this is something that you all can recognize. It's a cross-section of the normal skin. And when we insult, when we insult the um, uh, skin, specifically the dermis, and we do that every day with our scalpel, the dermal fibroblasts get activated. This activation is manifest by their ability to make more extracellular matrix components like collagen, fibronectin, glycosaminoglycans. Why are those fibroblasts making that new stuff? Well, they're trying to fill up the hole you just made with your scalpel. Now, what tells those fibroblasts, you've done a good job, you've filled up the hole, now stop making too much of this good stuff? Well, it turns out that the interferons are naturally occurring protein that uh, is able to give that message and normalize this hyperactive phenotype of these activated fibroblasts to come back to normal. So let me summarize, uh, I don't know, about 17 years of my life in the laboratory on one slide. If you take keloid fibroblasts, what do they do? Well, they make too much collagen, they make too much glycosaminoglycan. If you expose them to interferon, that's normalized. Also, these fibroblasts make subnormal amounts of collagenase. That's the enzyme that breaks down pre-existing collagen and it turns out that the interferon is able to normalize that. So, no brainer, what you should do is inject interferon into keloids and they should go away. Well, we did that, all the keloids get smaller, they all get softer, but none of them go away and the patient comes back and says, well that was a good start, you injected them, they got softer and smaller, when are you cutting them out? Well, what's the problem with cutting out a keloid? They come back. I thought we did a pretty good job. We excised the keloid, sutured it up, and about a year later, the keloid comes back. That's the bad news. The worst news, it comes back. It comes back bigger than it ever was before. Well, I guess about maybe almost 20 years ago, I had the opportunity to treat this unfortunate fellow who had multiple painful scarring keloids on the chest and uh, on the back, and he also was unfortunate because he had to undergo a right nephrectomy because he had a tumor in his kidney. We were concerned he was going to develop a large keloid in the incision site where they were going to deliver this tumorous kidney. And what we did is we waited for the suture line to heal and then we injected one half of the line with interferon and the other half we didn't. And you can see on your right where we didn't inject, that's where the keloid started to develop, and the area where we injected with interferon, it didn't develop, suggesting to us that maybe the use of interferon is best with respect to keloids, not, to inject the existing keloids because they just get smaller and they don't go away, but maybe you could abort the development of keloids after surgery. So what we would be doing is excise a keloid, suture them up the site, and then inject with interferon. Why? Trying to reduce the recurrence rate of the keloid. Well, how good is that? Well, the first thing you need to know is how often do keloids recur if you don't use interferon? Uh, We did a retrospective study, so take that with a grain of salt, of keloids that we excised, sutured the sites up and waited a year, or excised, sutured them up, and then injected with interferon twice the day of excision and one week later when we were taking the sutures out. And then we followed them for a year. Well, it turned out that for the earlobe keloids, the recurrence rate was 50%. Half of them came back at one year. Uh, If you excised them and injected them with interferon, those two times, the recurrence rate was about 19%, and that was statistically significantly less, suggesting that the interferon was able to abort the uh, recurrences of those keloids. Now, what else is out there? Well, maybe we could use something that induces interferon topically when you apply it to the skin, and you don't need to actually inject with interferon and that would be a mycomod. Now, a mycomod does a lot of different things, but it interacts with antigen-presenting cells uh, through the toll-like receptor seven that frees NF-kappa B from the cytoplasm to enter the nucleus, bind to the DNA, to promoter regions and allow certain regions of the DNA to be read to make messenger RNA and to elaborate a variety of cytokines and proteins that have a massive effect on the immune system, and I'm not gonna go into all the details, I'm sure you're happy to know that. Uh, uh, but it does activate the, both the innate and the adaptive immune system. And one of those cytokines that gets induced by amicomod is, and it'll spin, hopefully, yes, interferon alpha. So here, you can actually apply the uh, amicomod to the skin and induce interferon. So maybe you could just excise a keloid or, and then apply the amicomod to try to induce interferon and reduce the recurrence rates. Well, here are two small studies where immediately after the keloid excision, the amicomod 5% cream was applied directly to the suture lines every night for two months. And then we looked at six months for the recurrences, not at one year, but at six months. In one study, zero out of 11 recurred, and in another study, one out of 15 recurred, clearly both less than that 50% that was expected. Well, maybe we could also help people out who don't even have a diathesis for developing keloids. How about just after surgery in anybody? Could you optimize the ultimate scar by using topically applied amicromod? And there you have to go to the plastic surgical literature. This was a study of 15 patients who were undergoing bilateral breast augmentations or reductions. As you may know, the scars on breasts don't heal very well but it's a bilateral system, and what they did was one scar was treated two months after the surgery with either the amicomod 5%, uh, three or four times a day for uh, two months, or the other side didn't get any treatment or just petrolatum. Well, within a month, the blind was already broken because the side that was getting the amicomod looked worse. Well, that's not where you want to go. Well, why did it look worse? It got red. But what happened two months later, after you stopped using the amicomod? Here's an example of two patients. Uh, on your right side, is uh, the scar looks a little better than on the left side, both on top and on bottom. So these are bilateral comparisons. And the sides that has less of a scar received the amicomod. The other was the control. And then when you looked at the whole study, using validated scales to measure the severity of breast scars, they're called the Strasser and the Bosang scale. These are validated scales. The side that received the amicomod had less severe scarring than the side that got the control treatment. What else is out there for uh, treatment of keloids? Well, some of you may know about intralesional 5-FU. This was a study of 20 patients that uh, received intralesional 5-FU once a week uh, for an average of seven treatments, so seven weeks. And then they were followed up for 12 months to determine uh, the efficacy. The good news is, injecting the 5-FU into the keloids, there were no adverse events with respect to uh, CBC, LFT, or renal function. That was the good news. Uh, when they actually biopsied some of the residual keloid, the proliferative rate of the fibroblast was reduced. The 5FU did its thing. Um, the efficacy was okay. About 85% of patients had at least a 50% improvement. Not a home run. Okay, so that was at 85%. Now. Every single patient had pain. Every single patient developed hyperpigmentation. A third of them developed sloughing. And of the nine patients that had any response to the 5-FU, 47%, half of them, a year later, whatever that response was, recurred. So overall, not a great package. How about something different? Have, uh, anyone's ever used verapamil for the treatment of keloids? Uh, verapamil. Why would you even consider using verapamil? Well, it um, stimulates procollagenase, and again, collagenase will break down collagen. So therefore, maybe it'd be helpful with treating a keloid, which is basically a bag of collagen. And they compared it in a randomized fashion against intralesional kenalog, the standard, the gold standard of treatment keloids, uh, or two and a half milligrams of verapamil at one milliliter. And it turned out both groups, the kenalog group as well as the verapamil group, all had statistical significant reductions from baseline in redness, height, width, greater pliability. The uh, steroid worked quicker, but it had a worse side effect because of the hypopigmentation that's associated with injecting um, Kenalog, especially in darkly pigmented patients. And overall, neither of them had any good changes with respect to pigmentation or the length of the lesions. But here's an example of a keloid injected with verapamil. And then at 12 weeks, you see there is some effectiveness with verapamil. How about over-the-counter products? Well, we're going to talk briefly about vitamin E and onion extract. Any of you prescribe vitamin E or suggest vitamin E for scarring? I see a lot of no's. I'm happy with that. Well, there's one study in burn patients And they found that there was no significant difference in any of the parameters, range of motion, scar thickness, uh, graft size, or cosmetic appearance between the group that got either the vitamin E or the cream control at one year. So it didn't work. And then there was a double-blind placebo-controlled study of a Mohs surgical scar. Half the scar got vitamin E, half the scar got just the ointment alone, the emollient ointment and then looked at the scars uh, 12 weeks later. Uh, None of the scars, half of the scars that got the vitamin E benefited. That's bad news. The worst news was (laughs) the vitamin E made its half worse in 90% of the cases. And a third of the patients became allergic with contact allergic sensitivity to the vitamin E. So vitamin E is not a great idea. How about onion extract containing do you know what I'm talking about? It's over-the-counter. All right. <laughs> Randomized, double-blind, 24-split-scar sp- study, either getting the gel that contains the um, onion extract or petrolatum ointment at the time of suture removal. And then they looked at the ultimate scar that developed. Uh, the results, the bottom line. There was no statistically significant difference between the onion extract gel or petrolatum for any of the endpoints that were studied. And the conclusion was that the onion extract gel did not improve scar cosmesis or the symptomatology associated with the scar. So now, (laughs) with that information in hand, I guess we had a little hubris. We decided to actually consider using the onion extract gel as a placebo, but then before we did that, we wanted to make sure it really was a placebo, so we then compared it to something we really thought would be a placebo, which would be an alcohol-based lotion, Okay, uh, because you wouldn't think an alcohol-based lotion would have much of an effect on a keloid or on a scar. Um, we looked at a variety of uh, measures at different points in time. and the Patients as well as the uh, investigators evaluated a number of satisfaction criteria using a visual analog scale. So what happened? Turned out that the onion extract gel statistically significantly did better than the lotion with respect to volume, the length of the scar, the width of the scar, how firm the scar was, but. Overall, in terms of the end use of the patient satisfaction, they liked the lotion better than the gel, even though all the science showed that there was a statistically significant benefit. So let's go on to warts. I know Ted Rosen spoke about warts, so I won't repeat things he talked about, but what causes warts? Well, it's a virus, and it's a double-stranded DNA virus, and it's, uh, the DNA is protected in a... Uh, nucleocapsid, and it doesn't have an envelope. Who cares? Well, the lack of an envelope confers on the part of the wart virus a resistance to desiccation, to drying out, all right? Herpes virus has an envelope, so if you use something like ether that desiccates, it'll actually kill the virus. Now, cryo can freeze dry because it's cold. Uh, It turns out that cryotherapy has no impact at all on the wart virus. Now you're going to say, wait a minute, what's our standard of care for treating warts? Cryotherapy, right? You have to recognize when you're using the liquid nitrogen, you're not killing the virus. You're killing the host. You're killing the epidermal cells in which the virus is growing. Okay. So I don't know if any of you have had this experience where you use liquid nitrogen, you got rid of the wart. That was in the center, nice normal epidermal markings, and then you get this donut developing around it. Why does that happen? Well, it turns out the human papillomavirus is present for up to one centimeter from the most peripheral portion of the visible wart. Now, this is a finger, so you may not mind using a destructive modality even one centimeter around the wart you see. But when you're talking about the genitalia, Unless you're extraordinarily endowed, there's not enough geography here to go one centimeter around the, each of these lesions. I don't know why I had to put the word male, but it's early in the morning. I don't know if you had a late <laughs> night. <laughs> so it, it, maybe rather than just relying on a destructive modality, maybe there'd be something needed to use uh, to uh, upregulate the immune system to get rid of all the warts rather than using solely destructive modalities for genital warts. So what's out there? Well, again, there's that interferon. Does it work? Yes, it's actually FDA approved for the treatment of genital warts, and about 50 to 70% cure rate. Uh, But it's not user-friendly. It requires multiple injections into the genitalia. These are highly motivated patients. So here's an example of a patient. Um, I don't know if you know what the standard of care for squamous cell carcinoma of the penis is in the United States. It's penectomy. Now, this wasn't squamous cell carcinoma. This is not Bowenoid papillosis. This is actually just human papillomavirus genital wart. But his urologist already scheduled this patient for his penectomy, Recognizing we had nothing to lose and he had something to lose, we decided to actually inject with interferon. And you can see in his case, that 50 to 70% cure wasn't so bad, right? Uh, his immune system was activated. Well, maybe you can also use this amicomod to try to induce interferon locally. Does that work for warts? Yeah, if you use it three times a week for four months, if you look at all the patients that had complete clearance of their warts, about 56% of the patients cleared their warts. Women always do better than men in these genital wart studies. We can talk about why later. But it's in all the studies, no matter what the agent is, now maybe is this amicomod just causing a little redness and getting the wart angry and that's why it goes away? Or is there some real mechanism of action here? And that's one of the things I was asked to talk about, uh, insights into dermatology. Now, this looks complicated, not really. If you look at the 100 line going across, that's what happens normally in the skin. Now you see there's something going on in those green bars that's being induced above normal. What's going on in those green bars? Those are genital warts that were treated with a amicomod And they went away. And what's being induced? Alpha interferon, beta interferon, gamma interferon. So there's also, so what's happening is that the amicomod is allowing your immune system to get activated. And it's the immune system that's getting rid of the genital warts. It's not the cream. And I like telling my patients that the cream is just kind of just jump-starting your own immune system that would have gotten rid of it uh, yourself. Uh, there's a lower dose of Micromod, 3.75%, where you treat the genital warts not three times a week, but every day, and instead of for four months, just for eight weeks. And if we look at 100% clearance of all the warts, baseline warts, new warts that develop, warts that developed on the other side of the uh, leg, every wart, uh, 28% cure rate. Clearly lower than the other, but I explained where there were some differences because here we we're talking about a 100% clearance of every wart. Uh, again, women always did better than men. Um, and a per protocol, the women did 43% had a complete clearance. Uh, how about those patients that actually had 100% clearance? If you follow them for another 12 weeks, what's the problem with genital warts? They come back. What's the rate of them coming back? Well, these are the ones that were 100% clear at the end of the study and now you watch them for another 12 weeks, 15% of them had a recurrence rate. And that's lower than what's in the literature for recurrence rates. Any downside? Yeah, about a third of the patients had to take rest periods. Remember, they're using this drug every day. But a third of the patients had to take rest periods because of local erythema and side effects at the site of application. The good news, there was no systemic toxicity in terms of... Interferon-type toxicities like fever, chills, myalgias. Okay, how about green tea? Whoops, let's go back. Green tea for warts, use it for everything else. Uh, what's green tea? Well, it turns out what green tea is, is just regular old tea leaves, but when you have tea leaves, uh, it gets, they get oxidized. And when they get oxidized, the catechins that are present in the tea leaves, and the catechins are the good things, the uh they get destroyed. So for green tea, they take regular tea leaves, and it's counterintuitive. And what they do is they heat dry the leaves, killing the enzymes that cause the oxidation of the catechins. So therefore, you have a higher level of the catechins, presumably healthier. And that's why green tea is healthier. Okay? Now, what is this 15% catechins? Well, the way that it's described, it's a water extract of green tea. What's a water extract of green tea? Tea, right? You take tea leaves, you put water on it. Well, it's a little more complicated, but then they purify it and they put it into an ointment. And it turns out that, maybe for some of your exams, epigallocatechin, gallate, is the number one component of this mixture of the cinecatechins. Uh, How does it work? For warts, no one knows. But just very recently, just a month ago, there were some data suggesting that the cinecatechins are able to inhibit Proteases, like the metalloproteinases, they were able to inhibit some of the enzymes, like lipoxygenase, as well as the syndicatechins are able to inhibit uh, certain kinases, uh, EGFR, the receptor for epidermal growth factor receptor. Those things are involved uh, in the proliferation of epidermal cells, and that's why you get a wart, because the epidermal cells are proliferating. So there is some rationale why it may be helpful in warts, but no one really knows for sure what the mechanism is. Um, Does it work? Well, there are two phase three studies that got the FDA confident to approve the uh, uh, drugs uh, for external genital warts and perianal warts. And um, that's the size of the warts. The uh, ointment, either the vehicle or the active 15% synecatecan ointment were randomized, and the warts were treated three times a day. Now, that's different than three times a week or daily. Now, I don't know where you work, but putting your hands down your pants three times a day is not really going to be looked on favorably, but you really don't have to do that. Uh, You you tell your patients in the morning, then when you get home in the evening, and then at night, so you don't have to do it at work. But it's three times a day, (laughs) okay? And... uh, Again, looking at a very strict endpoint, complete clearance of all the warts that were there at the beginning, any warts that developed during the treatment, even if they developed three days before you stopped the treatment because the study's over, and they've only been exposed for three days to the drug because they just popped up, that still counts. Ah, The FDA wanted 100% clearance of all the warts, very strict endpoint, and then they followed up those that cleared for 12 weeks to look at recurrence rates, uh, here's an example of uh, some genital warts in the female, where the arrows are, six weeks, 12 weeks, three times a day, doing pretty well, and at 16 weeks, looking pretty clear. In the male, same thing, six weeks, it's getting smaller, 10 weeks, and at 12 weeks, considered clear. And also, it is FDA-proof perianal warts, and I think this is an impressive picture. This is after 16 weeks, uh, doing quite well. Now, how about as a group, those patients that, in a blinded fashion, received the syndicatech and ointment, 15%, over half of them, 53% of them, had 100% clearance of all their warts. Look at the vehicle, 35% clearance rate. Now, in the literature, most vehicle clearance rates for genital warts are usually in the range of 4 to 7 or 9% clearance rates. This is 35%. This company has a hell of a good vehicle. And it turns out that there's an irritant in the vehicle that may be the basis of helping get rid of warts. But the bottom line, the difference was statistically significant. The FDA felt comfortable with that difference. And the syndicatechin green tea ointment was approved. Once again, women always did better than men. If you use this drug, patients are going to say, well, how soon can I see clearance? Well, it can occur as soon as. 100% clearance within four weeks, but a very small percentage of patients will do that. And you really have to go out to four months of three times a day in order to achieve that 56% clearance rate. Uh, safety, uh, multiple exposure to this ointment. The systemic absorption is the equivalent of drinking 400 milliliters of green tea. So not a big issue. Uh, There were local side effects. The good news is that only 2% of the patients actually discontinued because of those side effects of this four-month study. Now, you remember the recurrence rates. This is patients who were 100% clear at the end of treatment, and then you follow them for another 12 weeks without treatment. And in this case, if we look at the red bar, 6.8% recurrence rate. That's very low in the literature. That's about the lowest you see for any treatment for genital warts. <laughs> but look at the vehicle. The recurrence rate was even lower, 5.8%. But the bottom line is that who cares for the patient? If it's a lower recurrence rate, that's a benefit. Okay. A couple of animations there. Okay. Let's talk about the stratum corneum repair in atopic dermatitis and psoriasis. For so the stratum corneum to work as a barrier against, uh, let's say, epidermal water loss, the stratum corneum corneocytes have to get, they're like bricks or plates, and then in between the plates there's lipid. And what is the lipid? It's ceramides, cholesterol, and fatty acids. So, in order for it to be an effective stratum corneum with respect to barrier function, you need those lipids, okay? Unfortunately, if you look at the green and red bars that are gonna pop up, atopic dermatitis skin is deficient in cholesterol and the ceramides. And it turns out that specifically, ceramide type three is associated with increased transepidermal water loss. That's bad. That means you're losing water. Why? You don't have the mortar. Why? Because you don't have the ceramides and the cholesterol that make up the mortar. So the obvious thing would be, well, why don't you just put some of these fatty acids and the cholesterol and the ceramides on top of the skin? And you could do that, but that would be a non physiological response of just putting it on the top of the skin. If you look on the right, it just stays on the top of the skin. That doesn't do you any good. What you really want are these lipids to go and penetrate into the stratum corneum to replenish the deficient level of ceramide in atopic dermatitis. You just don't want it to sit on the top. If you're just gonna sit on the top, you might as well just put saran wrap on everybody. That'll work. Not very cosmetically pleasing. But if you want to be physiologic, you want to get it into this corneum. <clears throat> can you do that? Well, using confocal Raymond spectroscopy, which I will not explain now because of time, but I'd like to, if you want. <laughs> uh, one can actually do, and, and this was done, an open-label bilateral comparison of the water and the lipid content, how much, as well as where the um, water and lipid is localized within the stratum corneum. So using this technique, you can actually measure where and how much, and they measured it in intact skin as well as sodium lauryl sulfate treated skin. Why do they treat the skin with SLS? That delipidizes the skin and allows for Greater transepidermal water loss as a um, model for a disheveled stratum corneum. Okay, so now, what do they do? They put a ceramide and hyaluronic acid containing product on the skin, and then using the Raman spectroscopy, they measure the lipid and the water how much and where it is. This looks complicated, and I guess it is a little complicated, but if you look at the y-axis, uh, axis that's the amount of lipid. You're going up, there's more lipid. And if you go across on the x-axis, that's deeper into the stratum corneum. And you can see as soon as two hours after putting on this ceramide-containing product and up to seven days for a full week, uh, there's greater amount of lipid, not on the surface, but high up in the stratum corneum where you want it to be, because that's where the corneous sites are, and that's where you need that mortar, okay? Now, this is even more complicated. I apologize, but I'll make it as simple as I think um, about it. If you look at red, red means a lot, a lot of water or a lot of lipid. so look at red, okay? And as you go on the y axis, as you go down that y axis, you're going deeper into the strand corneum. So let's look at water. So you can see there's not much red, not much water at the beginning because you treated these sites with the SLS. And then over time, you can see more and more red. And where is this red? It's deeper into the strand corneum and into the epidermis, and that's where you want the water to be because you need that water in order to activate the enzymes that allow for the stratum corneum to function as a barrier. And uh, therefore, you need to have water and in the right place. Okay? That's water. Now, if you look at the lipid, we start off with a whole bar of blue. That means very little lipid. Why? Because you use the SLS. And now, over time, you can see there's more and more red developing with time if you use the product. And where is it? It's relatively high up in the stratum corneum. It's not on the surface. It's in the stratum corneum. Okay. Well, that's all theoretical. Wouldn't you like to see if this stuff actually works equally as well as something that we actually prescribe? Uh, So this was a um, study where atopic dermatitis patients were treated. Um, These were mild, at least mild uh, atopic dermatitis patients. And they were treated uh, with either pymecrolimus cream or this ceramide-containing emollient foam. And the bottom line was there was no statistical difference with respect to the, <clears throat> the investigator's global assessment um, between the pymecrolimus or this emollient foam. Well, that's good. It was not inferior. There's something that you normally write that has a black box on it. All right, that's good. How about patient preference? Two-thirds of the patients like the foam better than the cream of the pimecrolimus, and that's important, too, for compliance. And here's just some pictures. Baseline, using the foam, doing better. Uh, Baseline, using the pimecrolimus, and then doing better, maybe not as well. Okay, is there a relationship between the epidermal barrier repair and psoriasis? something we may not really think about with psoriasis. Well, let me just introduce you to these genes called the LCE, the late cornified envelope genes, and what do they do? They encode for certain proteins in the stratum corneum. Now, if you're an individual that doesn't have two of these genes, the LCE3C and the LCE3B, if you're missing both of those genes, then your chance of having psoriasis is greater than if you have the genes. Look at the (laughs) p-value. I can't even read it. Point zero 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 one. greater chance of having psoriasis if you don't have those genes. What do those genes do? They help repair the stratum corneum after an insult. The converse is if you're lucky and you have two sets of these genes for these uh, uh, LCE genes, then you are "Quotes protected from developing and having psoriasis, also statistically significant. Now, if you tape strip the stratum corneum, and that is an insult to the stratum corneum, then your body tries to repair that insult over time, right? Well, it turns out that when you tape strip, these genes get turned on. Why? They're trying to repair the damage you just did with the tape stripping. So the way I look at it now, The um, inability to repair the barrier function in patients who have psoriasis causes the psoriasis. Don't blame the skin of psoriatics for that big thick plaque of epidermis. They're doing the best they can. They don't have the genes that repair the stratum corneum. So if you cabineterize the skin and you scratch the skin or you insult the stratum corneum, The psoriatics don't have the tools to repair the strand of corneum, and that's why it tries its best and makes a real thick epidermis to decrease transepidermal water loss. All right, how about metastatic melanoma? (laughs) How's that for a transition? (laughs) Well, there's two new drugs uh, that came out recently uh, for metastatic melanoma. One is ipilimumab, and it's a monoclonal antibody against uh, CTLA-4. What's CTLA-4? It's an antigen. And that antigen down regulates the immune system. Okay? So, now, by binding the CTLA4 with the antibody, the drug, then you, that down regulating antigen can't do its thing. It can't bind uh, to B7 on antigen presenting cells because it's all busy being bound up by the antibody. Okay. In effect, what you've just done is you've upregulated the immune system because you've blocked this thing that down-regulates the immune system. So now you can get greater activity of anti-tumor cells. Okay, that's the theory. Does it work? 676 patients with refractory metastatic melanoma were randomized into three groups. One group got the ipilimumab, another group got the ipilimumab and a vaccine, that probably doesn't work, and then a third group in a randomized fashion just got the vaccine. And what happened, the primary endpoint was different, because they succeeded compared to all other drugs, overall survival. That's the bottom line, overall survival. turned out that those patients who got the drug with or without the vaccine uh, had four months longer survival than those who just got, in effect, the observation just getting the vaccine alone. And the FDA approved the drug based on that. Again, these are metastatic, refractory patients. Bad side of this drug, remember it upregulates the immune system? That's why you're getting rid of your melanoma. The bad side is you've upregulated the immune system in a relatively nonspecific way, and there are immune-related adverse events. There were 14 deaths. Half of them um, were due to immune response activation in these patients, and therefore, <clears throat> there is a black box on this drug, warning you that severe and fatal immune-mediated adverse reactions can occur, including toxic epidermal necrolysis uh, in the skin, but also in the GI tract, in the liver, neuropathy, and therefore you have to test for that, also the uh, thyroid. <clears throat> And that needs to be tested, and if any abnormalities pop up, you have to stop the drug and give these patients high-dose steroids. Why? Because you have to calm down that immune system that you just activated. In fact, today is 11-11-11, and I will hopefully end this lecture before 11-11-11-11 <laughs> because it'll finish about 10.30. Uh, the, there's a watchdog board in the United Kingdom that has the clever acronym of NICE, (laughs) Uh, the National Institute of Health Clinical Excellence, and they decide where the public dollars are going to go for drugs. They said, not for this drug, in a draft. On the 11-11, today, they're going to have the final decision, and why did they not like this drug? Well, one, the drug is expensive. Uh, It's given four times uh, over 12 weeks, and each time you give it is $31,000. Uh, they didn't compare it to any other drug. It was a freestanding open-label study. Uh, and there was a very short follow-up, and those side effects that I talked about. But you get a patient at baseline. They get 12 weeks of the antibody. Look at the melanoma. It looks bigger, juicier. Well, that's because the immune system is activated and it's trying to get rid of it. Now you stop the treatment. Get smaller. Week 16, doing better. Week 72, Gone, week 108. This is someone who should have died. Gone. So for this patient, is thirty-one thousand dollars worth it? You got to decide. All right. How about the other drug? that drug. I have to introduce you to the BRAF gene in melanoma. Uh, there's a pathway called the Ras-Raf pathway, and it's responsible for proliferation and survival of cells. And that's the pathway. And the way the pathway gets activated is by growth factors telling the pathway, OK, do your things so cells can grow. So there's a growth factor. So um, in that pathway, there's in the red, there's BRAF. OK? And that's kind of pivotal, because that activates MEK, and MEK activates ERK, and then you get the proliferation. OK? Turns out that that BRAF can get mutated and that a specific site, the 600 site, OK? And if it's mutated, it gets turned on constitutively, which means it doesn't need those growth factors to turn it on. It just does its thing all the time. Well, that's bad, because then you have excessive cell proliferation, excessive survival, less apoptosis, and therefore tumor cells can divide and not die. And a way to look at it. There's one specific mutation called the V600E mutation, which is over 90% of the mutations at that site. <clears throat> and the normal wild type glutamic acid is changed for a valine. And just for that one little change, now the BRAF is firing all the time and activating the kinases and making those cells grow. The good news is there is an inhibitor which blocks that activation. Okay. So if you could use the inhibitor, you would block the BRAF and therefore you don't get uh, the proliferation and therefore you should get tumor regression. That's the basis for this drug, Vemurafenib. It is indicated for unresectable or metastatic melanoma that has been proven to have the V600E mutation. It wouldn't make sense to use the drug that is an inhibitor of a mutated BRAF if you don't have the mutated BRAF. So the FDA requires that the tissue has to be tested using a new uh, FDA-approved assay for the mutation, the V600E mutation. It is not recommended for the wild type. It shouldn't work. Okay? Does it work? Well, this is a large phase three study of using the Vemurafenib, the BRAF inhibitor, and comparing it to chemotherapy, DTIC, okay, and these were unresectable, previously untreated melanomas that were metastatic, okay. They were shown to have the BRAF mutation, otherwise they couldn't get into the study. They were then randomized to getting the Vemurafenib, orally, oral medication, or the DTIC IV, the chemotherapy, and how well did they do? Well, the endpoint, is overall survival of these melanoma patients with metastatic melanoma. Those patients who had the, received the oral vemurafenib, 84% of them were alive at six months, only 64% with the chemotherapy, and that was highly statistically significant. How about another endpoint, progression-free survival? Not overall survival, but progression-free survival. And if we look at the chemotherapy, 1.6 months for progression free. Not very impressive. And 5.3 for the vemurafenib. These are all the patients in the study, those little lines. And using the standard 30% reduction in tumor volume, 48%, half of the patients had a response to the vemurafenib. that's good. Only 5% in the chemotherapy. What's the bad news? Well, about 30% of the patients develop either keratocanthomas, squamous cell carcinomas, or papillomas, something that wasn't expected. But it's giving some insight into how squamous cell carcinoma develops. The good news is that unlike the chemotherapy, which causes neutropenia, the antibody to the B-raft didn't seem to have any impact on neutropenia. So the author's conclusion here was that the vemurafenib had a 63% decrease in the hazard for dying, 74% decrease of hazard of tumor progression, and benefits were seen in all the subgroups of these metastatic, even the worst ones that have high LDH, a very poor prognostic sign. And it was the first single drug for melanoma to improve the response rate, as well as progression-free survival and overall survival compared to a standardized active chemotherapy. What's the real bad news? Well, it turns out that progression-free response is real, but it's not durable. It lasts only about six months. And I won't go into the details, but when you inhibit that BRAF, there are other pathways that come into play and bypass the inhibited BRAF and activate the MEC directly. So now there's going to be a study of vemurafenib Plus a MEC inhibitor at the same time. And we'll see if that's helpful. Uh, ingenol mebutate. What's Ingenol mebutate? It's something that comes from a plant called Euphorbia peplis. It's called a common plant. What's a common plant? Weed. Very good. <laughs> it's a weed. So what do they do? <laughs> they cultivate the weed now and they take the sap and purify the active material. And why did they do that? Well, in traditional medicine in Australia, this was used for skin cancers and warts. Okay. Very quickly, what does this active PEP-005 do, or ingenol mebutate is the technical name. Uh, it causes necrosis of tumor cells directly, and it also activates <clears throat> and helps localize neutrophils into tumors destroying the blood supply, the vessels that are supplying the tumor. It activates those neutrophils that can kill tumors. It also activates B cells to make antibodies that are tumor-specific against the tumors. And now those tumor-specific antibodies can help localize neutrophils even closer and cause more death for antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity. It also activates dendritic cells to present the antigen of the tumor to tumor-specific lymphocytes and activate them. So there's some rationale why this thing may actually work in tumors. Does it work? This were two randomized double-blind vehicle-controlled studies of over 500 patients with actinic keratosis on the head and, I don't take it personally, the balding scalp. <laughs> and they were treated either in a randomized fashion with the Ingenol Mebutate 0.015% gel or the vehicle. Well, that sounds like any other thing, you know. What does this product bring to the table? Next line. The treatment is for three days only. Once a day for three days, topically. And then they looked for complete response and adverse events. And adverse events were uh, categorized up to, from zero, no adverse events locally, up to 24. 24 would be the worst. Okay, here's an example, at baseline, day four, that means they already had their three days of treatment. Day eight, by day 15, doing pretty well, 29, and this was 100% clearance at day 57, but the treatment is only three days long. How good were they? Well, how about the percent of patients that had 100% clearance of all their actinic keratoses? The baseline and any subclinicals that popped up during the treatment, 100% clearance. 42% of the patients had 100% clearance of all their um, actinic keratoses. 64% had at least a 75% reduction in the number of AKs, not 100%. And maybe more clinically relevant, the percent reduction in the number of AKs from baseline after using... The PEP-005, the Ingenol Mebutate, 83% reduction. That's right on target with all the other drugs that are out there. Uh, the worst side effects, again, from 0 to 24, based on erythema and flaking, which is pretty characteristic of AKs anyway. And here's an example of an adverse event at baseline. Day 1, 3 days of treatment, getting a pretty brisk reaction. The composite LSR now is 12 at day eight, but day 15 is coming down to seven, down to two, and down to one at day 57. So the local skin reactions peak. When? At day four. Well, they already finished their treatment. (laughs) So it's not like their compliance is gonna drop. They already treated. And then you can see by day 15, it's almost back down to baseline, and then ultimately down to baseline. This is not an eye chart. These are the side effects. Uh, the most important one that I could pick out was localized pain at the site of application. 13 14% of the patients had that if they were treated with the drug. But again, it's only three days. And finally, in the last minute, the most important, anybody have any desserts last night with chocolate? How many of you had a dessert with chocolate last night? <laughs> about two-thirds of you. All right. What do you tell your patients about chocolate and acne? Does it make it worse? Well, we did this study. Actually, it's in the JAD in 2011, not 2010. That's a typo there. Uh, We took 10 healthy male volunteers who had a history of acne. And they had to have uh, one to four papules or comedones at the start of the study. And then we made them binge eat chocolate. But what type of chocolate? It was 100% cocoa chocolate, no milk. No nuts, no sugar. That all confuses the issue when you look at the other studies with chocolate, because the high uh, glycemic index of the sugar, and there's some suggestion that milk in nurses, historically, if they had skim milk 100 years ago, then they have worse acne. We don't have any of that. This is 100% cocoa. Okay? <clears throat> so we told them, try to eat as much as you can of 12 ounces of pure chocolate. This is not the chocolate that you had last night, all right? This is kind of like bitter and not so nice. Okay. Uh, And then they had to maintain whatever they were eating over the next two weeks. And then we counted the number of comedonal lesions and acneiform lesions uh, four days later and a week later. Uh, This is what we used. And I am using a corporate name because that's what we used, Ghirardelli. It was 100% uh, cocoa. And we made them eat. Well, 12 ounces of that—it's a lot. It's hard to really visualize this on the slide, but he started out with four lesions, and then we just pointed to a couple of more comedonal-type lesions that developed um, by day four. He had 43 lesions, and then he had 70 lesions all over his face by day seven. As a group, they started out with an average of 2.7 comedones or papules by day four, 13 by day seven, 18 lesions. That was statistically significant compared to the baseline number. And, this looks complicated, uh, we did what's called a Pearson's correlation and it turned out not all of them could eat all the chocolate. They just said, I had enough. The number of lesions that they developed was proportional to the amount of chocolate they ate, suggesting that the chocolate was indeed involved in the development of exacerbating their acne. So I tried to give you an update on everything that I know in dermatology that's new. And I want to thank you very much for inviting me today.